1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recall This Book. I am Elizabeth Ferry. Hello. And I'm here with my most distinguished colleague, John Plotz, from the English department. Hello, John.
0: I'm also your least distinguished colleague, but okay. <laughs> Hello.
2: <laughs> and we're delighted to welcome our friend and colleague, Sasan Tabatabai. Sassan is Master Lecturer in World Languages and Literatures and the Core Curriculum. He's a poet, a translator, an editor, and a scholar of medieval Persian literature, And he's also, as I discovered in uh, doing a little bit of online research, a pugilist. So maybe you'll tell us a little bit about that. His work has appeared in Essays and Criticism, The Christian Science Monitor, Literary Imagination, The Seneca Review, Leviathan Quarterly, and The Harvard Review. He's the author of Father of Persian Verse, Rudaki and His Poetry. Apologies if I mispronounce that. Two books of poems. Uzun Barun Poems, and Sufi Haikus. And as I hope we'll have time to discuss at the end of the episode, he's also working on a translation of the uh, book Bewilderment by um, poet and father dear to my heart, (laughs) David Ferry. So... Um, so, Susan, uh, hello. Welcome hello. to what we call this book.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Yeah. So we thought, uh, in the spirit of other episodes, we'd start by maybe having you read a poem, and um, I picked one which listeners will know is um, uh, motivated by my interests in rocks and stones, which is called Firestones. And uh, so we'd maybe kick it off with that. And I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about the poem before you read it, or however. Oh, certainly.
3: You think. Um, the one thing, the, the, the Cardiff in this poem is in England. It's Southern California. Okay. <laughs> it's where I grew up to a large extent. And yes, it's a, it's an experience of walking on the beach. And and at the end of it, it's, it's basically a love poem, like most other poems. Awesome. So there's Firestones. <clears throat> I was collecting rocks on the Cardiff coast. A testimony to centuries of silt left on the shore of sediment pressed into stone. Sandstone, shale, tufa, travertine, jasper, flint. There was a stone that knew the sadness of the sea that saved its secrets. It was pockmarked with holes and lay half buried in sand, eager to save the ocean's spray like tears in its miniature pools. There was a stone that always ro- rolled in place. It had rolled round and smooth with each wave, desperately trying to control the tide. There was a stone that showed rings upon rings, placed by the sea over the years, that kept time for the Pacific. There were stones that breathed sulfur, that sparked when they touched, unremarkable in luster or shine. They were the lovers of the ocean, firestones whose sparks were not dampened by salty waves, but they only made sense in pairs. And there was this one, more white, more brilliant, more polished than any stone, but it was once upon a shell. It needed centuries to become stone. It was a counterfeit firestone. It did not breathe sulfur. It could not make sparks. I traced my steps back along the Cardiff coast and the stones I returned to the sands. The ocean's secrets would be well kept by the stones. Its tears would be stored in pools, its tides kept in check, its years measured in rings. But love itself I could not leave on the beach. I kept the firestones.
2: That's wonderful. And uh, uh, hopefully we can get a photograph of these firestones because you say oh, that you stones. still have them. So yes. we'll put it on there.
3: So something, just a note about this, the stones themselves. So there's um, this is something that I think we learned as Boy Scouts when I was a kid how to make fire with stones and if you find the stones mm-hmm. and you hit them against each other, they make a they make a spark if it's dark enough to see. Yeah, and they also smell like sulfur. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when you're looking for these stones, there there's always you can always find. Um, something that looks like a really beautiful polished white stone. Mm-hmm. But then when you pick it up, you realize that's not even a stone. That's still a shell. Mm-hmm. yeah, so that that's kind yes. of
2: yes. yeah, of I love the I love the stuff around time, both both the one of the things that feels very compelling about stones is that they are so meaningless or kind of outside of our capacity to to, yeah, to to mean, to to engage in meaning, right? So to say that they, they only make sense in pairs because they are used by humans, right, to do a certain thing. So,
3: well, yeah. um, if, if you think about it another way, they, they actually have a lot of meaning,
2: mm-hmm.
3: right? Stones are basically they've been there forever. Right. Right. They will be there forever. I think, yeah. you know, long after the, the human being has destroyed yeah. the planet and left. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, in a sense, and it's also uh, the, the sense of, you know, the, the weight they carry. Right. Right? Um, yep. the, the impenetrability of the stone. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. You
3: know, that, the, for me, there is something so solid and, in a way, comforting
2: mm-hmm. when
3: it comes to stones.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, yeah, that's probably a better way to say it is it's kind of like the difference between meaning that a hum- at a human scale— and then this kind of meaning that's way beyond human scale, right. right? I mean, keeping time is a form of meaning too, right? That's right. Um, yeah.
0: Well, there is that tradition of the scholar's rock, you know, the Chinese tradition of picking out – that you pick out a rock that is just uh, – it's almost like a Rorschach blot. Like mm. it's just immensely – crenellated and filled with holes and then scholars can sit and contemplate it. Right, and then right. you kind of, I think that's the kind of meaning you're talking about where it's ascriptive.
2: Well, it's sort of both. If, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think stones, this is my own riffing, but uh, stones are compelling because they do both at the same time. They both like look like a mountain, right? And some yeah. of those, those scholar stones or they, the other line I really like in the poem that I wanted to ask you was this list of different words for stones, Mm -hmm. tufa, flint, you know, and the kind of almost rolling them around in your mouth, right? Yeah. Um, But those are also stones that are kind of in a human scale, right? The stone doesn't have any sense of its own name, of course. Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Those stones, um, I'll tell you, I was so, (laughs) I I got so carried away with with finding stones on the beach. Mm -hmm. So I ended up, I remember that summer in, in San Diego. I ended up finding a, and I think it was a National Geographic book mm-hmm. of different stones.
2: Right, like a and field I, guide. Like a field guide, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I
3: was looking at the stones I had, and I tried to match them up with the with the images, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and yeah. then the names just kind of that they, they, they developed by themselves, mm-hmm. and then the, the sounds of the
2: names. Yeah, yeah,
3: um, was really what what. Caught my attention. Right. So did
0: you keep lists of names? I think that's something Jared Manley Hopkins used to do. He used to just, like, have variant names of things in, in mm. like, kind of journals full of names. Journals full of names. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Especially with the stones. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's almost like they're clicking against each other in this kind of stone-like way. That's you right. can that's imagine right. them. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. So... Um, Great, so maybe uh, maybe I'll shift our conversation a little bit into thinking about your work more broadly. Um, one of the things that's very um, exciting about it, and I'd love to hear you talk more is about the ways that you move between um, being a literary scholar, a translator and a and a poet and and in the in the books that you kindly um, um, sent to us, we could get to know your work better. Um, You move very seamlessly kind of between these. Um, So can you just sort of tell us a little bit about your practice and and how you got there and what you think about these different ways of uh, working?
3: Certainly, certainly. I started translating um, with the poet Rudaki, who's a 10th century poet. He is the first, really the first major poet to write in New Persian which dates back to around the 900s. And that was part of my... PhD dissertation. Mm. Mm. So I was doing an interdisciplinary PhD. It was at a program back in Boston University, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, which I guess makes it a collector's item. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) It was called the University Professors Program. Oh, yeah.
2: And I was. Was Christopher Ricks' program? Christopher Ricks, exactly. I was
3: working with. um, I worked with Christopher. I still work with him a lot. Mm. I worked with Rosanna Warren. Mm -hmm. and, um, And so I was doing. Something on national identity, in particular, looking at uh, Central Asia,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, the the old parts, uh, the old Eastern parts of the uh, of the Persian Empire,
1: mm-hmm.
3: As in particular when the vernacular starts to become used, which is you know it kind of fit in all to the in all the the different um, uh, national identity theories, mm-hmm. and then. Talking with my advisor about this, uh, the anthropologist Charles Lindholm. Oh
2: yeah.
3: (laughs) um, He suggested, as we were talking during our, uh, you know, uh, our regular meetings, if there was a poet I could translate, because he knew I liked to write poetry, Mm -hmm. that would fit into the theories. Mm -hmm. And it was a light bulb moment. I said, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm -hmm. Ruvaki fits perfectly. Mm -hmm. So that's how I started with the translating.
2: So, the theory being that the development of a vernacular goes along with or helps to make a sense of national identity? Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Right, right. Exactly. Mm.
3: Um, so, after I started translating Rudaki a bit, um, you know, I, and I w- I'd always been writing poems. Mm-hmm. So, that's really when the translating started.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then from there, I started translating different poets some 20th century poets and also back in the the classical works. Mm -hmm. Um, I started, I was teaching some classes and this is years later when I'm teaching, um, teach a class on uh, Rumi and Persian Sufi poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I started translating some Rumi and yes, before you know it, it was was the translations. Mm -hmm. Um, And then everything started to circle back and then all those translations started right. to have a real impact on my own poetry,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: You know, And uh, which kind of led to the Sufi haiku. Right,
2: right. Yeah, I think that was a great uh, a great concept, the Sufi haiku, right? So. As far as,
3: you know, my approach to literature and translating and poetry, mm. it is quite messy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I might be working on so many things at the same time and, you know, you just roll up your sleeves and... Mm-hmm kind of take things from here and there and, mm-hmm. and
0: see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Is all your poetry written in English originally? Or?
3: Well, um, I think I published only one poem in Persian
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, throughout all these years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's, it's interesting because Persian is my mother language, mm-hmm. but English is my first language. Mm-hmm. So I feel much more comfortable with English. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I translate out of Persian. You know? mm-hmm. So my family left Iran when I was um, in the seventh grade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, right when the Islamic revolution was happening. Yeah. Yeah. So my formal education in Persian pretty much ended in the seventh grade. hmm
2: yeah. mm-hmm. um, Did I mean, you speak Persian in the home? Yes. We still do. With, I still uh-huh. do with my right. parents. So, yeah. so the
3: spoken thing is very different. Right. Than, um, you know, an actual formal education. hmm mm-hmm. But then, when I started my PhD and started to read Rudaki, mm. a lot of my formal Persian I ended up learning from this one 10th century poem.
2: Yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, yeah,
3: and yeah, so I, I wrote one poem in Persian, mm-hmm. and then so again talking about how you know the little circuitous routes to things, mm-hmm. I started translating David Ferry, your your, your dad's poetry.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and that has been eye opening mm. because I always went in the other direction. I always went from Persian to English. Mm-hmm. Right. Never from English to Persian.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And it's been a wonderful experience.
2: <laughs> how, does it feel very different and, and how? Just the.
3: It, in a way, it feels very different, but in another way, it doesn't at all. Because mm-hmm. you're still translating, and you're translating poetry. Mm-hmm. So there's so much more than just conveying the words. Of course, you know it's uh, it's the music of the poetry. It's, mm-hmm. it's the rhythms. You know, it's it's each poem um, ha- has a particular breathing rhythm. Right. Right. If you can breathe the poem mm-hmm. in a different language, then that kind of becomes right. A successful.
2: Right. Poem. Right. I have another question around translating and and. Uh, kind of immersing in these literary traditions, so along with that comes, I mean, along with any poetic tradition comes a lot of convention, right? Musical conventions, metric ones, different kinds of um, registers of vocabulary. Do you? How do you see that influencing your own writing? And and can you give any ex- examples or or instances oh, where you?
3: Certainly, um, there's a few. Poetic forms in Persian, um, that you know, you read them all the time. It's 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 you hear them all the time, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's the the kind of things that I don't know. My grandfather might have known them by heart, and he would just recite them. You know, mm-hmm. my mother might have known them by heart and mm-hmm. recite them. Um, and those, it's strange because they kind of infiltrate you; they get under your skin, right? So. Um, one particular form that I've started writing in English is the ghazal form, mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. right?
3: And it's it's a very strict form. Translating a ghazal into a ghazal mm-hmm. uh, form in English is is very difficult.
2: Yes, but then imagine. I've
3: started writing them right. in right. in English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh it it's the couplets, um, the first two lines, the first lines of the first couplet. There is a rhyme followed by a refrain, right. and then that rhyme and refrain um, continues in the second line of every couplet to the end. Right, mm-hmm.
2: right, right. Um, yeah, and a little so, bit like a villanelle, almost, right? Yes yes, yes, yes. I have um, I have a short one. Please, um, yeah. That'd and it's,
3: it's called simply "Azal," and the themes are again, it's the the kind of mystical themes mm-hmm. that have really, um, you know, grown on me after teaching the, 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 the mystical Sufi poetry. So this is Ghazal uh, uh, As a boy, I waited for the smile to appear in you. Listened for echoes of the sigh I could hear in you. You are the mirror where I have sought the beloved. Her hyacinth curls, a nod, a wink, a tear in you. In the marketplace, you can learn your future for a price. They are merchants of fate. I see the seer in you. What had been buried under the scripture's weight, its truth, without words or incense, becomes clear in you. Hmm. They who bind you on the altar of sacrifice hide behind masks. Don't let them smell the fear in you. As I approach the house lit by dawn's blue light, step by step, I lose myself. I disappear in you. Mm-hmm.
2: I love internal rhymes like that. Yeah. that are, there's something very satisfying about them.
3: It's And uh, the, the, the thought about the Ghazal in Persian, the convention, is that um, they, they've usually been compared to a, a necklace of pearls. Mm.
0: Ah. So each
3: couplet is a, is uh-huh. a pearl. Mm-hmm. and but if that necklace breaks and the pearls fall on the ground you can put them back in any order
2: mm-hmm. huh. and mm-hmm. the
3: poem should still exist mm-hmm. Huh.
2: Mm-hmm. wow oh, neat. is
3: like it that. an
0: old form in english as well or is it only recently that people have started to write gazelles in english
3: um as far as i
2: know it's it's a more recent thing yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah yeah, um, yeah my and... son had to write one and
0: I'm just and, fascinated by those forms that get shared across languages. You right. know, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that actually, one of I was thinking about the haiku um, because the yeah. haiku is, you know, I've had conversations with other poets around, you know, for instance, the iambic pentameter is is ex- especially good for English, right? The way English is structured works really well, and it, and it kind of allows it to have that sort of tension between um, that that kind of delightful tension between the something that is metrically constrained and something that is imaginative and kind of feels like a
0: free um, expression. I mean, because, because iambic is a speech rhythm in English?
2: Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. That's the argument anyways. Yeah. Um, I mean, you guys are both more more literary scholars than me, but... I don't know um, anyone who
0: talks in dactyls, that's
2: for sure. <laughs> right. Mm. Exactly. Um, Although you're a little bit talking tactiles when you say that <laughs> sentence, but <laughs> um, but uh, and then people say the same for for Japanese for haiku that 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 you know it feels very artful in English to write a to write a haiku, but maybe not exactly in the same way in Japanese because it it sort of flows a bit more or something. Um, what did, what made you choose the haiku as the form and and why? For this particular what's the conversation between a sufi tradition and and haiku
1: um i don't know about you but i'm very busy and i don't have a lot of time to cook that's why i subscribe to factor eating better is easy with factors delicious ready to eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto these are two minute meals. Slash nbn fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: With the Sufi poetry, um, one of the places where it originates is the rubai form. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, made famous by uh, Omar Khayyam's rubaiyat. Yes, sure. Rubaiyat's just the plural of rubai. Right.
2: Um,
3: it's a quatrain, mm-hmm. and that very terse. Meditation,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, usually on themes of love and mysticism,
2: mm-hmm. and
3: they, they, they just really go hand in hand.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was
3: very attracted to that.
2: Mm.
3: And then um, I was part of a, a haiku circle
2: mm-hmm.
3: at some point at BU where, you know, everyone is sit around writing haikus. And and um, <laughs> I started and I, I think I had just come from um, the, the the Sufi poetry class mm. and it just struck me that the, the the haiku is even more terse than the rubaii. Mm-hmm. Right. Right? So it's... Wait a minute, that that's really lends itself wonderfully mm-hmm. to express the kind of uh, mystical themes that we encounter in the Sufi
0: poetry.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Right, so...
0: Why is brevity uh, wonderful for Sufi themes?
3: Well, um, the reason the poets, the Sufi poets, the, they're all mystics, when they turn to poetry is because they're trying to express some kind of mystical experience, which um, by nature is inexpressible.
0: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm.
3: they turn to poetry. And um, when little glimpses of the kind of experience that the mystic is going through, mm-hmm. um, I think it becomes little windows yeah. into, right. Um, right. into the way they, they are – what they are experiencing – which makes the, the, the poet make sense.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sense. And mi- is it also maybe the sort of mysticism in the observational? Because haikus also, you know, have this kind of um, impulse to the almost imagistic, right? Like this yeah. sort of very specifically observational.
3: And also it's something that, you know, you can, you can not only just recite and just uh, splits, you know, with a few seconds, mm-hmm. but it's the kind of thing that, if it's very easy to memorize, right? Mm-hmm. And but once you memorize it and you repeat it, then that really again ties into the the, the mystical
2: experience, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So
3: mm-hmm. there's that yeah. sense of repetition on particular words mm-hmm. um, that sometimes create the you know the, that trigger the mystical experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, Can I ask if music fits into that at all? Like, do you think of it as a musical form or the haiku? Yeah.
3: Um, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, I would like to think my haiku has music <laughs> yeah, to it. Yeah. I would like to think all my poetry has music yeah. to it. But music is huge with the with the with the mystics. Yeah. Right. Again, talking about the inexpressibility
0: mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. mystical experience. Mm-hmm. Right.
3: Very often they turn to music, yeah. And this is the kind of thing that comes up in discussions in the class all the time. Mm. Yeah. you know, it's like if if you are in conversation with the divine, mm. right? So the thing that comes up all the time is like, what what language did God speak to Adam and Eve? Yeah, right, right,
2: right. yeah.
3: And its chances are, you know, it's not going to be Portuguese, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So it's uh, <laughs> it's and, you know the, the the language of the mystic, in a way, becomes music.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I like the image of the window, too, because they are sort of slightly square, too, mm-hmm. right? So it does kind of mm-hmm. – there's a sort of visual feeling about a haiku yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah.
3: And um, it's – you know, the, the – it's interesting to be able to express something in – within the context of the rigidity of the form. Right. Yeah. You know, so it's just so – regularized. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. You know, it's...
0: So I have a... a this is like a... If, it's going to come out as a muddled question, but you see if it makes sense to you. There, there's a tradition in English, like when you were talking about your Firestone poem and the, the way it becomes a love poem because you think about the two, you know, the two stones representing, you know, two souls and love. That makes me think of an English language tradition in which poetry is so much about the lyrical eye, you know, like subjectivity. Mm-hmm. But when you're describing the haiku, even with the window, there's that sense of, um, you know, there's an impersonal quality to the mystical vision. So how do you square those two? Do you think those two things coexist within poetry or you're sort of always tacking between the eye and the impersonal? Or,
3: you know? It's the eye in all the, the Sufi poetry. Right, even mm. in my bhikkhus. Yeah. It, it's a very interesting thing because it's all about the you mm-hmm. and not about the I.
0: Mm.
3: Right? So, and the you can be understood in different ways. You know, the you represents the beloved. The you can be the divine. It can be, uh, you know, a, a, a mm-hmm. person you love.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: But the ultimate goal is that union of the I with the you. Right. And it is that union in which the I, Completely disappears. Mm-hmm. So it's in a way, it's it's looking at two different sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole point is for that you for the for the I to disappear. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a little roomy anecdote where the lover goes and knocks at the door of the beloved. And she answers the door and she says, "Who is it?" And he says, "It's me." And she says, no, 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 you don't understand. Go away. So he goes away. And then the, the poem tells us that he cooks in the flames of separation. Mm-hmm. Right. So he had come to the door with a raw heart, mm-hmm. but his cooks, his heart cooks in the flames of separation and he wanders for years and he goes back to the door of the beloved and he knocks again. Mm-hmm. And she says, who is it? And he says, it's you. Mm. And
0: she says, "All right, now you understand."
2: Wow! <laughs> wow.
0: The, <laughs> ultimate <knock-knock joke. laughs> it's the ultimate knock knock joke. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, finally, I'd love to um, to hear you talk a little bit about a project that I know about through my father um, of of translating his work. And you you mentioned um, you mentioned that as your kind of first experience of translating into Persian, right? And, you know, all these ideas around both the relationship between a, a rigid or constrained form and expression and the music of lines and also the – sometimes with my father's poetry, I talk about poetic salvage, right? Because there's always like a bunch of different lines from different things that are almost mm. um, almost like a conglomerate rock, right? Where it's kind of sort of embedded within it. pudding um, so, Puddingstone. New England puddingstone, exactly. Um, So I, um, yeah, we we thought I'd love to hear about that project, and then and then if we could perhaps end our conversation with um, hearing uh, your reading in Persian of a poem that have we've discussed on this uh, podcast before, uh, along with the poet uh, Roger Reeves' uh, resemblance. That's right. That's right. With
3: David Ferry. I've known him for a number of years. He's um, in the core curriculum at BU. We taught his um, translation of Gilgamesh,
2: mm-hmm. right?
3: So, and he was always part of the reading. So, after a while, we became um, we became close. You know, mm-hmm. I'd say, I dare say we became friends. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And there was a time Certainly we would true. meet at um, Matt Murphy's
2: mm-hmm.
3: yep. for lunch on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. And we would talk about things. And uh, on one of the lunches, I, I, I tried translating one of David's poems from Bewilderment, a short one. Hmm. Um, I think it was Soul. That's oh, yeah. One I started with lovely poem. Mm-hmm. And uh, shortly after that is when the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. And then after the pandemic happened, obviously, we weren't
2: meeting for lunch anymore. Um, and Matt, Matt Murphys went out of business. And Matt Murphys went out of business. Yeah.
3: So I started translating the poems and calling David. So mm-hmm. it was, in a way, it started as a way for us to have conversations on the phone,
2: mm-hmm. you
3: know, without just rehashing small talk over and over again. Right. Um, so I would translate one in Persian and I would call him and he would read the English and then I would read my Persian. Mm. hmm and uh, David doesn't understand Persian. Mm-hmm. But he has such an incredible ear right. that he would ask me all kinds of questions, you know, and tell me, oh, this works particularly well. Mm. And really just <clears throat> going on <clears throat> the rhythms yeah, that's of great. things themselves. This is resemblance. Um, and resemblance in Persian is Shebohat. It was my father in that restaurant on Central Avenue in Orange, New Jersey, where I stopped for lunch and a drink, after coming away from visiting, after many years had passed, the place to which I had brought my father's ashes and the ashes of my mother, and where my father's grandparents, parents, brothers had been buried, and others of the family all together. Jo restaurant, Rioabana Central de Chaeau Orange, New Jersey. که برای نهار و کمی مشروب با انجا رفته بودم بعد از دیدن همان جایی که سالهای پیش خاکستر پدرم را با انجا بردم و خاکستر مادرم همانجا که مادر و پدر بزرگ پدرم مادر و پدرش برادرانش و کسان دیگر خانواده همه با هم خاک شده بودند The atmosphere was smoky and there was a vague struggling transaction going on between the bright daylight of the busy street outside and the somewhat dirty light of the unwashed ceiling globes of the restaurant I was in. He was having lunch. I couldn't see what he was having, but he seemed to be eating, maybe without noticing whatever it was he may have been eating. He seemed to be listening to a conversation with two or three others, Shades of the dead come back from where they went to when they went away, or maybe those others weren't speaking at all. Maybe it was a dumb show, put on for my benefit. Have I otal du divud va kish mobhami dar dadas setade beine nure daraxshan-e rooz dar khiaaban-e shulug va nure hamchon cherkine havaabhaye neshostaye saqver-e sironi ke daram budam rooimidad. داش نهار میخورد نمیتوانستم ببینم چه میخورد اما به نظر میامد که میخورد شاید بدون اینکه که باشد که چه داشت میخورد به نظر میامد که به گفتگوی دو یا سه نفر دیگر گوش میکرد آیا سایه های مردگانی بودند که از جایی که رفتند وقتی که رفتند برگشته بودند یا شاید آن دیگران اصلاً صحبت نمیکردند it was the eerie persistence of his not seeming to recognize that I was there watching him from my table across the room. It was also the sense of his being included in the conversation around him and yet not though this in life had been familiar to me. No great change from what had been there before even in my sense that I across the room was excluded which went along with my sense of him when he was alive That often he didn't feel included in the scenes and talk around him and his isolation itself excluded others به نظر می آمد که با یک پافشاری وهمووری ظاهرن متوجه حضور من نیست من که از سر میز در آن طرف اتاق او را نگاه می کردم و همچنین احساسی که او جزوه گفتگوی اطرافیانش بود و در این حال نبود. گرتر در زندگی این برای من آشنایی داشت و فرق زیادی با آنچه قبلا اونجا بود نداشت. حتی در احساسی که من در آن طرف اوتا جدا مانده بودم. چیزی که با احساسات من به او وقتی که زنده بود مطابقت میکرد. Where were we in that restaurant that day? Had I gone down into the world of the dead? Were those other people really shades of the dead? We expect that. If they come back, they would come back to impart some knowledge of what it was they had learned or if it was, indeed, down there, then they, down there, would reveal to us who visit them, in a purified language, some truth that in our condition of being alive, we are unable to know. On rose there on restaurant, ma koja budim? Ayah, men be dunya yu mordaghan furor rafte budem? kesan diger berastisayye yu mordegan budend? منتظر چنین چیزی هستیم که اگر باز گردند باز می گردند و دانشی که از آن جای گرفتند را برای ما بیان می و اگر اینجا واقعا آن پایین باشد آنها در آن پایین برای ما که به دیدار آنها می رویم با یک زبان پالود حقیقتی را آشکار می که ما که هنوز زنده ایم نمی توانیم آن را در کنیم their tongues are ashes when they speak to us. Unable to know is a condition I've lived in all my life, a poverty of imagination about the life of another human being. This is, I think, the case with everyone. It is because there is a silence that we are all of us forbidden to cross. Not only the silence that divides the dead from the living, But antecedent to that is the silence that is between the living and the living, unable to reach across that silence through the baffling light there always is between us. Among the living, the body can do sometimes, but the mind, constricted, inhibited by its ancestral knowledge of final separation, holds back, unable to complete what it wanted to say. Nada on stand-holatist, که تمام عمرم را با آن زیستم یک تنگ دستی پندار راجب زندگی یک آدمیزاده دیگر این فکر میکنم سرگذاشته همه است زیرا سکوتی وجود دارد که ما اجازه نداریم آن را پشت سرگذاریم نه تنها سکوتی که مرد را از زنده جدا نگه میدارد اما پیش رو تر از آن آیا سکوتی است در میان زنده و زنده سخوتی آلوده در یک نور مخشوش که همیشه بین ماست سخوتی که نمیتوانیم به سوی دیگر آن دسترسی داشته باشیم بین زندگان جسم گاهی توانایی پیدا می کند اما زهر منقبض داشته به خاطران دانش نیایی که راجب جدای نهایی دارد توقف می کند و نمیتواند آنچه میخواست به را کامل کند what is your name that I can call you by? Virgil said when Eurydice died again, there was still so much to say that had not been said, even before her first death, from which he had vainly attempted with his singing to rescue her. Virgil said that Eurydice was a ke shavad, <laughs> wow. Thank you. Oh. Yeah. My pleasure. It was... I'm always so moved by David's poems. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we have, this is part of our conversations, our yeah, weekly yeah. conversations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's,
2: it's... Well, there's something about hearing it in the two languages mm-hmm. and having it also be about being unable to communicate and mm-hmm. yeah. trying to communicate the
0: tongue of ashes.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. 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 And that notion that your Britishie has still has more to say. You know, yeah. That there's that, that that gap that's always there. Yeah.
2: yeah, and the and the the silence, the gap between the living and the dead, and and, and antecedent yeah. to that, between yeah. the, living right. the, living the living and the living, living
0: yeah. the Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that the point you made about your discussion in class about like what language was God speaking to to. To Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, Mm -hmm. languages make you aware of those gulfs. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sasan. This was a wonderful conversation, and we're really looking forward to seeing seeing more of the work. Yeah, Yeah. thanks a lot.
0: It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Yep,
2: and thank you to our listeners.
0: Recall this book was founded by Elizabeth Ferry and me, John Plotz. It is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanity Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen, website design, and social media by Miranda Puri of the English Department. We're eager to hear your comments, criticisms, and thoughts. If you liked what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at RTB, thanks for listening.